0: The Letter Written and Directed by Daniel Ruiz Tyson Episode six
1: To Room eleven Of all of my letters. Of all of the people and places I have written to, you were the one thing I was happy to lose, the one person, place, I didn't love. Maybe you don't even belong here amongst these missives. And yet I couldn't tell the story of my post-2008 fall and the turmoil that the losses and the recession and the ridiculously low nectar points of crawl that came with it brought to my life without talking about you. I came to you in July 2010 my chaotic lifestyle about to cost me everything, yet not quite grasping that. Marooned within your pink walls for exactly 150 nights, you more than any other experience changed me. You came to define me for a long time. In some ways, I guess you still do. I knew from my first night in the hotel that I'd seriously overestimated my capacity to endure hardship and solitude, I thought that I could just slip back seamlessly to living as I had at Mayflower, living without the basics that most people took for granted. I was wrong. The isolation and discomfort I felt in room eleven slowly and systematically picked me apart and broke me. Following the fire that eventually led to Miss Latin America and I go in our separate ways, I had decided that rather than pay a fortune for a studio whilst I waited for LA to be ready to move in with me, I'd instead pay a fortune to live in a hotel I remember that Monday morning when I first went to view the hotel it was yet another beautiful hot day of a summer that briefly had promised so much as I walked over Vauxhall Bridge the bridge that I first remembered crossing as a 6 year old one summer with my mum on the 118 bus ahead of me were two free runners running and jumping over any mound regardless of how small or big it was They would find new ways to jump, using those knolls to launch themselves into some spectacular mid-air move, displaying a stunning athleticism beyond most of us. Eventually, as I neared Warwick Way, where my home for the rest of the year would be, I lost sight of them. As they disappeared, I felt something in me go. I had the sense that I was on the cusp of making a huge mistake. I could almost feel my heart rupturing like the fissures on the cafe's cleft-chin Portuguese couple. Confirming a long stay was possible, the hotel owner told me the hotel had Wi-Fi and an ironing board. By the second day, it was clear neither was true. The owner got his senior Polish maid, a 40-something woman who looked older than her years and sported a short, spiky hairstyle popular in the 80s, to show me around what he felt would be the ideal room for me. Room 11 You were located up two flights of stairs, right at the top of the second landing, a drafty, medium-sized room with decor that would have been ridiculed even in the 70s. Your weird L-shape struck me, as did how dark you were for a room that was overlooking a main road. But in the end, I chose you because you had a pull-out desk fixed to the wall. I wanted to write as much as I could while I was in there. Your cold, pink-painted walls became my surrogate home for five months. I had no contract to tie me down. I could leave whenever I wanted, which was important to me. Tired as I was of being locked into complex tenancy agreements, heavily weighted in favour of landlords that came with multiple clauses stipulating how and when you could leave the crap accommodation that fell way short of what you'd hoped it would be, though it's not like I had any alternatives.' During my time there, I heard every Alan Partridge gag going. My stay at the Vine Hotel in Pimlico, as misleading a name as the Champions League, for it was essentially a bed and breakfast, was the standout worst decision of my life in the face of fierce competition, and gave me an enduring contempt for the continental breakfast and skimmed milk in particular.
0: In your final letter, you've attempted to explain away your choice to move into Room 11 as... The poor decision-making of a beleaguered man. You were, you write, a man haunted by his losses, hounded by the recession, disappointed by his then-girlfriend, and a long way removed from his mid-naughties, multiple rhinoplasties heyday. Daniel, why did you move into a hotel?
1: I didn't want to be dealing with landlords, didn't want to be dealing with letting agents, not on my own again reading through 20-page contracts before I could even consider whether I could hang a picture up to make it look like a home.
0: The most ridiculous conversion flats kept appearing in your life, each one tinier than before, like one of those mysterious black monoliths in Space Odyssey. Except there was no evolution at your end. There was no man-ape-discovers-bone-can-be-used-both-as-a-tool-and-a-weapon moment.
1: No, there were just windowless bathrooms whose noisy extractor fans effectively aged any new relationships by about five years, serving the same function the burning of coffee granules by police officers at murder scenes do. And there were tiny two-seater sofas that, you know, forced you to sit too closely to any visitors whom you might not know that well. There was storage heating that disappeared after midday. There was a little voice in my head that just got louder and louder saying to me, why would you want more of that? I quickly became isolated within your pink walls, rarely stepping out to mingle with other guests in the communal areas. It was the kind of room where people would end their lives, and in a sense, my old life did end in there. Latin America visited only once, your awkward L shape not roomy enough to accommodate a large skulled lady and a forceps delivery man. You came with the most miserable shower I've ever encountered. Its pitiful drip was enough to break me. It was as if the prototype for the first ever shower had simply been installed in my room and never revisited as shower technology moved on.
0: The shower was an issue. It was, yeah. Yeah, you write that... um... Not catching a veruca in there was up there with Shackleton steering his men to safety after his ship Endurance had become trapped in the Antarctic ice.
1: It was the worst shower I'd ever come across.
0: Yeah, it sounds pretty bad.
1: It was, uh, it was as if no one had bothered to incorporate the recommended improvements made in the subsequent 160 years since the shower's invention, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think I've ever struggled so much to work up a lather on my body with a sponge.
0: And you'd only return to the sponge following a curious work disciplinary the previous Christmas, in which as you waited to go up before a panel, you revealed to your boss the hard water issues you were having living in your old South Lambeth road place. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, the consequence of which was that you could rarely work up a lather in the shower.
1: That's right. My my boss was fighting my corner at the meeting, which I was grateful for. But it was an awkward situation. I knew he was cheesed off with me, so unusually for me, I instigated some small talk to placate him.
0: Your showering issues.
1: Yeah, that was my that was my small talk. Yeah, and yeah, uh, you know, broke the ice. He told me the only way to get past the issue was to go back to the sponge. I hung on to my job for another few months, and by the end of the week, was finding my showering experiences much improved as a result of buying a sponge.
0: But the uh, the sponge was of no use whatsoever in Room 11.
1: No, this wasn't so much a hard water area as a no water area. <laughs> room 11's pathetic drips of water crushed the little spirit I had left every morning. I really knew things had gone wrong when flashing neon Christmas lights were fixed to my balcony before October was out. It reminded me a little of finding the Beano annual on sale as a kid months before Christmas. I'd always think, why so early? I'm a notoriously bad sleeper, and the flashing lights eroded my sleep further, and it was then that I fashioned a hybrid boxer shorts eye mask from the worn-away gusset of an old pair of pants in a doomed attempt to keep the lights out that streamed in through the worn-away curtains. Watching those free-runners on Vauxhall Bridge back in the summer suddenly seemed a lifetime away. With Christmas coming, I knew I had to find a way out. But summer gave way to autumn, and then winter, and I was still stuck there, marooned the eight-week maximum stay i had unconvincingly told myself i wouldn't exceed long past i waited for news that la and i could resume our search for flats with spacious hallways that allowed for easy shoe removal it never came i began to guess something had gone wrong when one night in late november inside room 11 i reenacted the entire tears for fears going to california concert at the santa barbara amphitheater performed in may 1990 just as the duo were on the verge of splitting up. I'd spent the bulk of the 90s convinced I was one half of Tears for Fears, though to confuse matters, I was never sure whether I was the dark and troubled Roland ausable or the more affable Kurt Smith, and much time was wasted on this. I suspected I leaned more towards the ausable Smith was always hugely popular, and I'd never been popular. "'Eres demasiado serio,' Tita always tells me. "'Soy muy funny,' I tell my aunt, Cuéntame un chiste, she says. No soy esa clase de funny. Soy, como se dice, más observational. I reproduced the Santa Barbara concert word for word for an hour and a half, alternating between being Ausable and Smith and breaking off every now and then during some of the lengthy instrumental pieces towards the end of the concert to catch my breath in that cold room, not having realised how physically demanding playing live can be. I imagined the flashing Christmas lights hooked to the balcony to be the press and the audience taking their pictures. Every note I heard in my head that night felt real.
0: Pimlico and the whole surrounding area, Victoria and Belgravia, the whole London SW1 thing, that appealed to your inner parts?
1: It did. I I used to go there as a kid in the school holidays. Uh, My mum had cleaning jobs around there in big old houses in some of the grandest squares in London, Chester, Grosvenor, Eton, Belgrave.
0: Your decision to move to that hotel killed that love, though. Some nights, conscious you were destroying what the area had always meant to you, you'd leave the hotel late and walk through the Pimlico grid, its garden squares and Regency architecture, and try to save what you felt for SW1.
1: I didn't want to lose that.
0: But you did. Your life had been irrevocably altered in those streets. With each walk back to that hotel over those five months, more and more had been
1: lost. They say when you hit the bottom, the only way is up. But in 2010, I found I seemed to keep plunging through whole new, previously unheard of levels of bottom. It might have been I was some sort of losing pioneer, because quite frankly, my descent just didn't stop. I got kicked off multiple writing projects as my writer's block deepened. On one occasion, bizarrely, this occurred over a large sea bass meal at my then producer's house. The piscine flavoured P45 wasn't my thing. Everything about it unsettled me. Eating with a lady I only knew professionally. I was worried about my mastication techniques and conscious that my low on the fork grip, which Latin America never failed to pull me up on, would also be picked up. I feared my lack of fishbone removal skills showed me up for the working-class South Londoner that I was. I much preferred the ordinary P-45, being escorted off the premises. You know where you stand with that. I also lost a couple of office jobs, the second of which, in October 2010, left me signing on next door to Channel 4, where just 18 months earlier my comedy show had been commissioned. Without a work reference, I knew I couldn't move, that was the final blow as far as Latin America was concerned. One day, I went to sign on, and walking through Strut and Ground Market, my old commissioning editor at Channel 4 walked right past me, confirming I was not so much yesterday's man as the day before yesterday. People just don't want to know you when you're losing. I signed up to job sites like Monster and Sex in the City. I had to accept this is who I was now. The job market was carnage. The recession was squeezing me like a pair of tight polyester shorts on a 1970s replica football kit. I was doing what I had to, but still, I was glad my dad wasn't around to see me signing up for secretarial job alerts that to this day continue to assault my inbox daily. Something was happening to my head. Room 11 was slowly picking me apart. I was getting slower. My thoughts grew erratic. I could barely focus. For the first time, the post-2008 losses began to hove into view. My uncles, Lopez, the fat man dead in his car, the messy breakup with my erstwhile large-headed partner. And this time, I couldn't dismiss any of these. It was a race between my sanity and my girlfriend as to who would walk out on me first. I watched a lot of rolling news during my time in Room 11. The TV was the one thing that did work. The backdrop to my time at the hotel was that incredible rescuing of the 33 Chilean miners trapped underground after 69 days. I'd let my mind go off on flights of fancy, pretending I was the final miner to be brought up to the surface, the one that had kept their spirits up and staunched the infighting amidst the factions that built up down there. The loudest roar above ground was reserved for my resurfacing. I hoped I would one day resurface from room 11 too, and be able to rebuild my life.
0: You say the losses made a man out of you. Yeah. It's just the recession meant it took a little longer to prove it.
1: The recession made it harder for a lot of people, myself included, I think, to come through everything. Where once I was full of ambitions and dreams, I found myself reduced to pulling through. I was tired of just pulling through. It was almost better to lose.
0: Well, I I can't believe you're saying that.
1: Well, what is surviving? What kind of existence is that? Where is the feeling, the battle in surviving? I was giving it everything I had and nothing was changing. The world didn't owe me anything, but, you know, an explanation wouldn't have gone amiss. In those final weeks, as the meltdown in room 11 escalated, out of the blue, a call came from the hospital telling me they would see me. I think the escalation was in part down to my meeting with the original counsellor, at which I had got increasingly agitated as her stomach continuously rumbled in a tiny room. I never know what to do with stomach rumbles, whether your own or that of others. There should be some sort of etiquette in this situation, with a party behind the rumbles acknowledge the rumble and even make light of them. I would happily have stepped out of the room for two minutes and allowed them to grab a sandwich. I just wanted out of there. I think she mistook my increasing nervousness in there for that of a man who was at the end, which I was, but my agitation was purely down to her rumbling. Two weeks before Christmas, I went in for my first appointment proper, and this time, unlike the bereavement counselling of 2004, I knew I had to tell the truth. The hospital's psychotherapy department was buried deep in the basement, hidden away like a medieval king's half-mad brother whose existence no one acknowledges. Anything to do with mental health always seems to get buried away in the vault of some building, like even the hospital is ashamed of it. Descending the stark stairwell, its walls as white and plain as every one of my post-Mayflower homes, it felt like the world was telling me it didn't want to know about my problems. The waiting room was the loneliest waiting room I've ever been in, a million miles from the promise of my new life just weeks earlier in North London, away from all the ghosts south of the river. The fact the appointments were after hours served to accentuate the sense of solitude, but given why I was there, it would have been a lonely place irrespective of the hour.
0: You make the curious observation that you've never been to a counselling session that involved you ascending stairs.
1: Yeah, Look, more and more people are experiencing mental health issues during this recession. You've got charities like mine saying they get 28% more calls now than pre-recession. Mental health is mainstream now. It's like when Have I Got News For You transferred over from BBC2 to BBC1. That's what it's like. So let's not keep burying these clinics in basements. Let's give them prime locations next to the ENTs, the dermatology clinics, and I don't know, radiologies of this world. That's what I'm saying
0: Right, you you don't want to be made to feel worse by being sent down to a basement.
1: That's it. I want to be walking behind someone heading into ENT, my damaged head up, carrying my takeaway latte, and as they hold the ENT door open for me, I gesture towards the entrance to the therapy department and just mumble, you're all right, I'm going into the head clinic, just one or two issues to iron out. A sockless counsellor, well, psychotherapist to give him his full title, set to work on me for the next year. A few days before I made it out of the hotel, he told me that the intellectualization and intense thought I'd given to my situation was failing, that I needed to find a new approach, but that for it to work, I needed to stop beating myself up. The fire, he said, was no one's fault. No one could have foreseen that event. The hotel at the time made sense, he surmised, I took a temporary measure to deal with an unexpectedly bad situation. It didn't go as I'd hoped, but I wasn't to know that. A close friend, though, had a different view, one that perhaps, knowing myself, had more than a grain of truth in it. Blaming the fire for what subsequently happened to me, something which was out of my control, maybe gave me the excuse to head off in the wrong direction and lose my mind in your glorified hotel. I'd convinced myself everything was out of my hands and allowed myself to make one mistake after another, absolving myself of any blame because of the way the fire had taken away the life I was set to live.
0: By November, you were out of work, adrift in room 11. Yeah. You would walk to the cafe twice a day across the river, a beat a man knowing somehow he had to find a way to come back. Christmas was coming. The Room 11 epiphany that would tsunami your life was creeping closer, too. Tell us what you were doing during this
1: period. I had a playlist on my iPod that I didn't veer from. Right, and what was on that? A couple of Take That tracks on there, you know, post-2005 comeback.
0: OK, Patience, that kind of thing?
1: Uh, don't think I was into Patience. Uh, greatest Day, Greatest Day, good Gr- song. Greatest
0: Song. Greatest Song.
1: Yeah, really, really like that song. I was, you know, I'd be listening to that. I'd be walking through the uh, back streets of Pimlico, and then walk across Vauxhall Bridge Road on towards the cafe in South Lambeth Road. Each day a little slower, more disconnected. Each day needing the uh, cafe that little bit more.
0: And that was when you first saw future me. That was yeah. The old man in the cafe. The the man you fear becoming.
1: Yeah, future me drinking his coffee having his eggs on toast on a Saturday, always in his brown suit, pink face, white hair, bulbous eyes, giving him a a permanently startled look. And you
0: were struck by the the obvious loneliness.
1: It made me realise that for the first time in my life, I could see myself ending up on my own. I didn't want to end up alone. It was here in room 11 that I first imagined the voices, different voices, but always American Talk show hosts, interviewing me, even though I had absolutely nothing to plug. Holding me to account for the poor decision-making of that whole period, probing me for answers as to how I'd ended up in the biggest cul-de-sac of the many wrong turnings I'd taken. I don't know that I ever heard them, but whatever they were, they wouldn't go away. I tried to answer their questions, giving those fantasy hosts credence.
0: Of all the things you ever did, Room 11 was the one you questioned most.
1: Your life had unraveled after the fire. Room 11 was the first time you'd ever stopped believing in yourself.
0: All of your past failures, you'd keep going. You'd write your way out of it. But this was different. You were now living a life you didn't expect. Your dreams had died like an unsealed pack of wet wipes.
1: At no point before that had you ever contemplated failure. I remember running into people at parties in my younger days who were a bit older, and they used to tell me they used to write or act, and I could never get my head around the used to bit. I used to think, why did you give up? How can you give up on your dreams? I never wanted to wake up one morning my dreams lost to me. But it happened. Sometimes I would just hear them, all at the same time,
0: with me now, South London podcaster and Latte pants, Daniel, Daniel Ruiz Tizen. Host
1: of Daniel Ruiz Tyson is available. Half man, half Daniel latte. Ruiz Tyson. I had to make sure when I left you that those voices or imaginings, whatever they were, stayed locked in room 11. On the first Monday of that December, the day after Miss Latin America had informed me via text that we were over, I woke up in room 11 at 5 a.m., with a feeling so far beyond anything I'd ever experienced. I could see with a clarity I'd never had before that I had failed and that I was still failing. It was just one moment, but it was enough for me to break. The great Japanese author, Haruki Murakami, wrote that everybody reaches a point of no return and that some get to a point where they can't go forward anymore. I reached that point in room 11 but my friends had seen it earlier. Miss Latin America too. I wasn't going forward. And when we reach that point, all we can do is quietly accept the fact, Murakami concludes, that's how we survive. The six weeks out of work changed my life. I applied for over 400 jobs during that period, only getting one interview. In the end, I went back to the same job after they called me back a week after that troubling morning in Room 11. They let me go and then they took me back on. I swallowed my pride and returned with the same haircut, something that disappointed me hugely. Long and shapeless, bouffanted, like the hair my dad sported in the missing posters I'd circulated back in 2002. There were acts of kindness during that period which I never forgot, not only from friends, but strangers too. A colleague whom I didn't know too well lived with his girlfriend and her mum just opposite the hotel and invited me over for Christmas dinner. I was never going to go. I was too awkward to take up an invite with strangers on such a big night. But the gesture was humbling. Curtis. His name was Curtis. I never saw him again after leaving my job in the spring of 2011 to focus on getting better. But I never forgot that act of kindness. I finally left you on the morning of Christmas Eve to go and stay with my cousin outside London for Christmas. I stopped in the doorway and took one last look at you. I felt it was important to remember everything that had happened in there, what it had cost me. I didn't yet understand what had happened, but I knew that whatever it was, it had claimed me in this room. As I cautiously attempted to rebuild my life over the next couple of years, I would do so with that feeling still with me and I know without that December morning, nothing would have changed. I went to you to die, in a sense, to finally put the old life to bed. You were like some really run-down, inefficient Dignitas clinic, the paperwork dragging, and it was five months before my old self was finally put to rest. I had to leave myself behind, just as others had left me. It was the only way. The hole I'd been digging for nearly three years was just about ready to be filled. Then, unable to stomach one last dreadful continental breakfast that left my tash smelling of skimmed milk, I settled my final bill and walked out. I've written these letters to help me understand what happened to me in Room 11, to my life, but also to recognise I'm still here. I made it through. After I left you, I sat in the cafe for a year, and sought to see the world with a clarity that had hitherto eluded me, and to find a way to emerge from the rubble of my old life. I processed the losses over a thousand lattes, viewing the world from the same table of the same café. There had been too many room elevens, too many bad choices. I've learned that decisions taken quickly, the ones that often turn out to be wrong, take a long, long time to fix. I knew nothing could change until I recognised I had lost everything and had to start anew. That was an important step. I still have some mornings where I wake up and I just want it to be the 80s again. But they pass. Many of the old dreams and ambitions are now beyond me. But some are still within reach and I will focus on those now. I just want to be happy. I want lattes that stay warmer for longer. I want a book deal, new jeans, better beard growth... I want to live on a houseboat and have a cleaner I can trust, who's not offended when I carry out bag searches. I learned that life is about checking yourself for lumps, tolerating salads and being able to handle knowing someone you once loved being with someone else. Deal with that and the world can still be yours. It is quite probable that I'm more latte than man now. In the absence of a woman in my life, I live for the latte. I've been aware of that for some time. I'm walking towards my cafe every day and I'm thinking, there's got to be more to my life than this. But what? What is there beyond coffee? How do I find a woman while I have a brace? Is love the only thing that can cancel out the latte? I'm not a man easily pleased. My severely limited range of facial expressions means the smile does not come easy to me. I don't give them away cheaply. My orthodontist says this time next year I'll be smiling easily. He doesn't know me. Smiles ought to mean something. You should feel them in your heart. Maybe the smile will come at some point as I continue walking on towards the sun as my friend had advised me the night before I returned to the hotel for the last time. I'm walking on with my 235 nectar points knowing I was lucky to have known some of these people I've written about. It took a long time but slowly I'm starting to believe in myself again. Goodbye.
0: In the letter, inner US talk show host was played by Brooks Livermore and also featured Pippa Winslow, Alan Mitchell, Clay Lowe and Kate Sawyer with Daniel Ruiz-Tyson as himself. The engineer is Annie Lloyd. The music is by Ignatio Lothano. For more news on the letter, visit the blog, theletterofficialblog.wordpress.com